Alright, continuing tonight in this overview of the Revelation, Revelation chapter 18, detailing the fall of Babylon the Great. Now with Amos in the morning and Revelation, especially this part of Revelation in the evening, it seems like <clears throat> judgment in the morning, judgment in the evening, and judgment in the afternoon. Actually today it was sunny in the afternoon for me. I had to watch part of the round table there with Sonny Tucker, our, uh, our uh, president of the Arkansas Baptist uh, state convention, very enlightening, very enlightening deal. Let's uh, let's get started in earnest tonight in chapter 18 with the fall of Babylon the Great. Now, just to remind you, over the last couple of weeks, we have looked at the nature of Babylon the Great in chapter 17. She's been mentioned a couple of times up to this point uh, in the Revelation, but not with any kind of not with just just out of a vacuum. The fact that she exists and that she is being Destroyed without a lot of extra information. And finally, in chapter 17, you get one more of these kind of parenthetical sections where it kind of pulls away from the linear narrative and gives you some extra information, this time about the character and the nature of what this mystery is. She's described as the mother of all prostitutes and drunk with the blood of the saints. The character and nature of her prostitution is both spiritual and commercial she causes the false worship um, she causes the false worship of the antichrist in the name of the one true god and her commercial prostitution is godless gain at any cost and any price and when you take spiritual and commercial prostitution and combine them you get the mystery of lawlessness fallen angel and fallen man together in rebellion against God. She has existed as a timeless manifestation of rebellion through the governments of men all the way throughout history. We can point specifically in Scripture and see her being manifest in Egypt and in Assyria, in Babylon and in Medo-Persia, in Greece and in historic Rome and one of these days in the Rome of the Antichrist that is to come. Here we see Babylon the Great's final and ultimate expression that occurs in the seven years before the day of the Lord and the coming of Jesus Christ. And it will end in her destruction at the hands of, interestingly enough, not of the Lord Himself directly, but will end as the Lord destroying her through the hands of the beast and the alliance of his ten kings. And so here in chapter 18, we kind of move away once again from, from this parenthetical section, this last one. There have been several, but this is the last one here in the book of Revelation. One of the things that gets confusing towards the end of the Revelation, if you're not careful to pay attention, and I think we have been, but just for future study, I want to point this out again. One of the things that the Apostle John is known for is being the great timekeeper of the New Testament. And what I mean by that is he uses very definite Greek words to indicate the progression of events from one to the next to the next to the next. It's a very Greek way, not a very Hebrew way, a very Greek way of writing. A lot of the other New Testament authors in their narratives have a tendency not to do this. They speak more thematically which is why you'll often see um, you'll see parallel um, in, in the synoptic gospels. You'll see parallel passages 
that aren't necessarily in the same place or the same order in Mark as they are in Matthew or as in Matthew as they are in Luke. And with a very kind of strict Western mindset, that's something that often kind of throws us for Luke. That was not loopy at all uh, for the, the culture that this was being written in. They spoke thematically about things much more than they spoke about linear progression, but John was the one that was different. Man, John's writing is, is very Western in its mindset, and he uses these chronology words that move the story from this happened, and then this happened, and after that, this happened. And his writing is similar in the Revelation. So if you look closely, he will give you cues when you're moving into these parenthetical sections when we go, okay, we're going to stop with the linear progression of the narrative and we're going to pull back and we're going to talk about one of these subjects in depth for a while. Of course, the biggest one of these is the one that starts in chapter 12 and runs to the end of chapter 14 um, and tells us about the war of enmity between Satan and God that starts all the way back before the earth was founded and ends with the second coming of Christ. Then we jump back into the narrative with the bowl narrative and we see the, the progression of, of the narrative all the way up to the seventh bowl and the end of the world and we're going to see the judgment of Babylon the Great. But before we do, we think it's probably time to fill you in on who Babylon the Great is. And so you get all of chapter 17 with this specific look at, at what this entity is. Now here in chapter 18, we move back to the narrative, that of the celebration of her destruction and the announcements of the harlot's fall. And so here's that chronology word, after this. After this. I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And so after this description and after the events of the second bowl, we see this time stamp that indicates the events and declarations immediately to follow Babylon's fall. Now that fall, if you want to look at it in the chronology, is spoken of, or that fall is spoken of in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15 through 18. This is the last thing we see in the parenthetical section about her. And the fall comes at the hands of nothing less than the beast himself. It says, The angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw and the beast that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. And they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over her royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, if you're going to ask who destroyed Babylon the Great, it's a little bit of a loaded question. Because on one hand, it is the beast and the ten kings that are the ten horns, the ten political leaders of that alliance. They are the one that lays her to destruction as far as the ones that are actually putting their 
hands and their physical power upon her, but ultimately it is the Lord that brought about her end, for He puts it in their heart to have one mind with the beast. They are the means by which He is accomplishing the destruction of lawlessness. This message is delivered by this angelic messenger that comes down with a light so bright that His glory, it says, um, lights up the entire earth. And that's an interesting statement because if you backtrack on the judgments that have come, that means that this is the first light that has fallen upon the earth as a whole since the pouring out of the fifth bowl. And the content of his message is this. She's become a haunt. Uh, Fulake in the Greek. It means people that are sentinels that keep watch. The place where captives are taken. And she is the haunt. She is the place of captivity where the sentinels are unclean spirits and demons and unclean birds and detestable beasts. The judgment of God that has come is the result of her spiritual and commercial prostitution. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Now if you want to look back into the, to the linear narrative and say, okay, where does this go? Well, it goes actually in, in two places. And the reason it goes in two places is because you have a general linear narrative that's running in the Revelation from the front to, to the back. But then within the larger parenthetical section of, of chapter 12 through chapter 14, there's kind of a micro linear narrative in there as well. And, you know, the beginning of Revelation in its intention with the opening of the, the seals and the opening of the scroll in, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, you are seeing a, a detailed view of the day of the Lord that begins in earnest with at the halfway point, three and a half years into the revelation and looking at detailed events until the end. The reason that that's the case is because you saw the detailed events of the first three and a half years explained in the book of Daniel before the scroll was sealed the first time. But when you get to chapter 12 through 14, you see kind of a broader overview of the events of the enmity, the war between Satan and God that starts before the creation of the earth and ends with the return of Christ, and it has a linear progression within it as well. And the fall of Babylon the Great is a big enough deal that it makes both timelines. It shows up in both of them. In chapter 14... In verse 8, we see that the fall of Babylon the Great occurs immediately before the coming of Christ for the harvest of the earth. In chapter 14 and verse 8, it says, Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And we see a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints to keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ in light of the Antichrist putting His mark upon His people 
In verse 13 it says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, for they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And so if you look in this kind of like big bulk parenthetical section that starts all the way back here before the creation of the world and ends with you know the return of Jesus Christ and the judgment on the day of the Lord, then the place that you're going to see the fall of Babylon the Great is at the height of the Antichrist power immediately before the return of Christ. The thing is, is this is a very broad narrative. I mean, we get the entirety of redemptive history in three chapters. Chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. And when you've got a narrative that's that broad, it's a big one. It's a big one. Bare minimum at this point, you know, if you're the most conservative, you can approach it. You know, you're talking nearly 7,000 years. It's a big narrative. When you cram all that into three chapters, then you could have two points that are mentioned in the narrative that have a lot of stuff that happens between. And so the question is, is that the case here or not? The good news is, is when we jump out of the parenthetical section and into the more focused narrative that is taking up the entirety of the book of Revelation and is only focused on three and a half years, we see that there's not a lot in between the events of fallen, fallen as Babylon the Great and the return of Jesus Christ for His people. As a matter of fact, it is nearly immediately before. If you look in Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She's become a dwelling place for demons. These are the same events that occur in the narrative in chapter 16 in verse 19 where it says the great city. And this is the seventh bowl. This is the seventh bowl. And remember when the bowls were poured out, he says, with this comes the end. And so here is the end of the end. The last of the seven. Verse 19 the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Great hailstones, about a hundred pound each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. We see... The fall of Babylon the Great at the day of the Lord at the hands of Satan and his beast immediately before the return of Christ. In chapter 18, verses 4 through 8, the angel takes time to show John the description of her fall. And let's just say this that there is not going to be any mourning in heaven not be any mourning among the people of God for the ruin of Babylon. Now what we've been looking at on Sunday morning 
What we've been on looking at on Sunday morning, there is mourning in heaven for the ruin of Joseph. As a matter of fact, the Lord's angry that Joseph isn't mourning the ruin of Joseph. He's mourning it. That's why he's so angry. That is not the case here. What you see here is not an anger that comes out of love. What, here, what you see here is an anger that comes out of hatred and wrath as just full throttle. It's the last. I mean, you know, angel told John, buddy, with these, this is the last. The fullness of God's wrath is being poured out. Here's everything he's got, and they are not unhappy happy about it. Revelation chapter 18 verse 4, and then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Good grief, is that not just what we saw this morning? I mean, is that not the attitude of those people right there in Amos chapter 6 of, you know, I have exalted myself to the point and kind of drank my own Kool-Aid right here out of my, you know, martyr blood filled jewel encrusted cup I've drank my own Kool-Aid to the point that I believe my own exaltation and there's no way I'm offended that you would say that judgment would come to me I'm above it I'm, I'm not worthy of judgment it's exactly what she's saying it's because when you look at what was going on in northern Israel at the time it was the mystery of lawlessness at work man it was all these fallen men and all these fallen angels all these demon gods they were worshiping together in rebellion against the one true God and even much like what we see here in the revelation producing not just simple paganism but an actual counterfeit religion of the worship of the one true God just like he's doing he's just better at it this is the ultimate expression that was the little rock being thrown in the pond this is you know the rock that knocks all the water out of the pond verse 8 for this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Single day. One shot. Right here at the end. Right before the return of Christ. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Now, I don't know. You could speculate all you want. and That's what a lot of these guys like to do. I don't know what kind of weapon, whether it be physical, whether it be spiritual, whether it be some conglomeration of the two that the beast will yield against this great city, but whatever it is brings it down in a day. And its destruction is absolute. Yet, we sang tonight, Toby prayed, Redeeming love will be my theme and shall be till I die. Amen. The fall of Babylon the Great is chock full of wrath and it's chock full of redeeming love. It is, as a matter of fact, one of, if not the greatest, vindicating moment of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that the world will ever see. Because it is in the midst of her fall that now she falls in it. 
she falls in a day. And because of it, all Israel is saved in a day. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. The beginning of the description of the fall of Babylon the Great has nothing to do with Babylon the Great, but instead has to do with God calling His people out of her. The call of God immediately precedes justification. Now, we have a tendency, and and I'm okay with this as long as we understand what we're saying. Um, We have a tendency, um, you know, one of the things that we teach from the pulpit, that Mark teaches in class, that Jim teaches in class, that our, our kids are taught in class is, look, salvation is not an event. Salvation is a process that is full of many events and relational continuations that come out of those events. And so Paul teaches this in Romans probably the most clearly. It's definitely where we're going to go tonight because it's nice and tight. That salvation as we understand it began in an eternity past in the heart of God wanting to love and be gracious to His people. And it's not complete until glorification. And the thing about glorification, and glorification is complete as though it has been brought to its fullness, but it's not complete as though it's finished because it's eternal, right? So, I mean, salvation starts in eternity past and it continues into eternity future and it's full of all of these different events. And one of those events is justification. And that's the moment when we are justified by the blood of Christ. We are put in right standing with God. His sacrifice is applied to us and we are no longer reckoned according to our own blood, but we're reckoned according to the blood of Jesus Christ. Because we're temporal beings, we typically call that event salvation. That's what we label it. I was saved. That's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that as long as we understand that salvation's actually bigger than a moment. Justification's a moment in time. It's an event. But it's part of a much bigger whole. In that line of events, it's going to start with the heart of God and end in our glorification. The event that immediately precedes justification is the call of God. That's it. It's not the preacher. It's not, it's not a track. It's not even reading your Bible in the actual activity. It's the call of God. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He was intimate with, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. And so, you know, here's God and He is is intimate. He has a heart for His people. And out of that love for His people, the next thing He does is predestine them to be His people. This all happens before space and time and anything that we understand even existed, the first time that we kind of get in on these events is when the call comes. And the call is often tough at first, man. The call is it's convicting. You know, it, it causes us to see our sin. It leads us to repentance. It causes us to have faith in Christ. It's the effectual call. And then what happens? Those he called, he justified. Justified. And so always before justification, what you see immediately before is call. And here on the last day, when there is no more time, but if justification doesn't happen today, it ain't happening. Here at the last moment, at the last hour, the first thing that comes out of the destruction of Babylon is not a a description 
of the wrath of God. It's a call to His people to come out lest the same judgment that's on her fall on them. You see, God has not forgotten His people even here on the last day. He's not forgotten His people Israel. Now we've already seen how He hasn't forgotten His people who are currently in Christ. What did He say to them? If one is ordained to captivity, to captivity he goes. If one is ordained to the sword, to the sword he goes. Here is a call for the faith and the endurance of the saints. Because guys, you are called to do something that is going to provoke another people to jealousy. He's been looking after them. It's clear that he hasn't forgotten the people that are in Christ, but he has another people. The remnants of the house of Israel that are his elect that do not yet believe. And this is the day when they're going to do it. This is the day when all Israel will be saved. God has not forgotten. He has not forgotten His people Israel. Look with me, if you will, in Jeremiah chapter 51. Jeremiah 51 and verses 1 through 5. Thus says the Lord, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, against the inhabitants of Leb Kamei, and I will send to Babylon winnowers, and they shall winnow her. And they shall empty her land, and when they come against her from every side on the day of trouble, let not the archer bend his bow, and let him not stand up in his armor, spare not her young men, devote to destruction all in her army. Just like we see the, the speed in Revelation being described temporally with this all happens in a day. Her destruction comes upon her swiftly when she was in the midst of her revelry and, and of her self-importance saying, I'm a queen and mourning will never come to me. Man, destruction befell her like that. So fast... Here we see the description, not so much temporally, but practically. He says, don't even let the archer bend his bow. That's swift death, man. It don't take long for a trained archer to bend a bow. Don't let him bend his bow. Don't even let the guy in the armor get on his feet. Spare not her young men. Devote to destruction all her army. They shall fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans and wounded in her streets. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts, but the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. In the moments of Babylon's destruction, the Lord has not forgotten His people. Instead, the nation will be born again. The nation will be born in a single day. Let's look at Isaiah here for a minute. We're going to be there for just a second. Then we'll, we'll finish up with some Zechariah and then we'll call it a night. In Isaiah chapter 66, in verses 7 through 9. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. It is, it is amazing to me, and obviously the Lord is making a point for us to get this, because everywhere you look at this event, whether you look at it from 
the, the, the facet of the destruction of Babylon or whether you look at it from the facet of the salvation of his people Israel in their midst, one thing is real clear. It all happens real quick. It happens real quick. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? The answer is yes, it shall. For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? No, He won't. Instead, verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you love her, rejoice with her and joy all you mourn over her that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. When they are born again, they will be born in a single day and it will be a day of trouble, a day that is in the midst of the fall of the greatest rebellion against God that has ever existed. We'll move down the page just for time's sake. If you look in verse 14, he speaks about the day of trouble in which in this moment they're born again. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice, your bones shall flourish like grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show his indignation against his enemies for behold the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire for by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. He hasn't forgotten His people. He will save them. He will save them in the midst of His wrath being poured out upon lawlessness, upon the harlot Babylon the Great. He will save them in a day of trouble. He will save them in the moment that they look on the One whom they pierce. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10-11 through and then on into chapter 13 verse 1. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on Me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And then he goes on to describe how each house of Israel will mourn by itself and their women will mourn by themselves. And then he says this, On that day, there shall be a fountain opened. Thanks for the setup. There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn. Emmanuel's veins. And when they see Him, when they look on the One whom they have pierced, when they hear the call of God to come out, come out My people, lest this wrath fall on you, in that day the call of God will move as it always does to the justification of God and redeeming love even in the midst of great judgment and destruction is the theme. On that day, the Lord will be vindicated. I don't have time tonight, man. Vindication is a big deal. He likes to say, I told you so. He loves it. I mean, it is right up his alley. 
when he says, buddy, I'm destroying the insolent and I'm going to show grace to my people. And everybody looks and goes, I just don't see how that's going to work, man. These Israelites, they won't follow you. They keep running off after this God and that God. And, you know, now you've got, you know, these Gentiles that you brought in and they're about half flaky part of the time. And I mean, what do you, you know, it's just not looking good. And he says, no, let me tell you. One of these days, I told you so. I told you so. Vindication. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin in and uncleanliness. What you see at the beginning of this judgment on the last day is a call of separation, not physical, but spiritual, lest they share in her sins. For they have been heaped as high as the heavens. She is as arrogant as she can be. For she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning shall never, shall I never see. Yeah. Well, just like we saw this morning, that form of ease only serves to further the judgment that's coming. In the midst of her judgment, God saves His people. We've said it over and over. We'll say it one more time tonight. In closing, not the last time, but one more for tonight. In closing, judgment and salvation always come together. Because if you're going to be saved, there has to be something to be saved from. He is faithful to destroy the wicked, and He is faithful to show grace to His people. Amen. Pray for us.